0: This is Your Last Meal, a show about famous people and the stories behind the foods they love most. Today on the program, Rachel Price and Michael Calabrese, singer and drummer, respectively, of Lake Street Dive.
1: I've been playing a lot.
0: Lake Street Dive has released seven albums, including their new one, Obviously. That's the name of the album. And they were nominated for an Emmy for creating the theme song for the Netflix show, Somebody Feed Phil, featuring past your last meal guest, Phil Rosenthal. I read that Phil does love theme songs. I was wondering if you had any favorite theme songs from your childhood.
2: Well, the one that gets stuck in my head constantly is Uh Charles in Charge. Same. Horrifying.
1: Right. That's one of the ones that I sing every day, like with other words. (laughs) Can you give an example? (laughs) Oh, it's just like whatever you're doing, you know, you're like
0: cleaning up. This house. (laughs) Yeah, whatever comes to mind. Yeah. This episode, we're going to explore the intersection of food and babysitting. Everything from what are you really allowed to eat when you're babysitting to memories of the foods your babysitters made for you. And do the names Christy, Marianne, Dawn, Claudia, Stacy, Jesse, and Mallory, I I can't believe I just did that from memory, mean anything to you? We're also gonna talk about food and the babysitters club books. But first, my conversation with Rachel Price and Michael Calabrese from Lake Street Dive. You all met at the New England Conservatory of Music, which, you know, you've been together for a long time. And I'm just curious if you remember your first impressions of each other when you met. What were you all like back then? I do remember I remember
1: everybody perfectly. (laughs) Really? Yeah, well, I remember you, for sure. So we were jazz students at the New England Conservatory, and there's um, an absolutely terrifying thing that everyone has to do when you're entering the jazz program, which is you have to play the freshman jam session in the first week of school. And Calabrese had, like... I I don't even know how you had the hair that you did in college. It, like, came out of your head and it was, like, curly. Like, I've never seen that from you since. um and you had like a middle part i want to say and you yeah (laughs) and he had like he was wearing these like pleated khaki shorts which were amazing um and they were they didn't fit you they were like way too big um (laughs) so i remember it super well but he had like a really great vibe really great attitude and like I feel like we all were like, oh, this is the friendly drummer. This is like the drummer. Everyone's going to be like asking to be in their group.
2: Yeah, that's how I get in because I'm not that good. That's how I get. Gigs, cause I'm just
0: nice. It's the pleats, you know, it's like the, it's like the rings yeah. in a tree. The more pleats you have, yeah. the more experience you have as a drummer. Exa- yeah,
2: they see the pleats and they know that there's no threat.
0: <laughs> yeah, for sure. Yeah. Do you remember Rachel?
2: I do remember Rachel. I think it was like an orientation type tour with our peer advisor leaders. And Rachel had an allergic reaction or something was going on. I forget what it was like an eye. It was a sky or an eye.
1: I don't know. know It's it's literally never happened again in my life. But yeah, my whole right eye was like swollen.
2: And yeah. And she just peeked out the door because like we were getting ready to go and to our peer advisor leader. And she was like, Um, I'm staying behind. Um, I can't go. I need to take care of something. And she was very, there's poise and there's confidence. Um, And and I was like, okay, she knows how to handle herself.
1: Oh, wow. I was mortified. I was super embarrassed. It was 17, first week of college. Yeah. I remember my dad was like, just brought me a pair of sunglasses. And he was like, just go to everything.
2: (laughs) This will solve it.
0: (laughs) I think that is the most vulnerable time that first week, though, because, you know, you live in your own little home world and you're being exposed like people are going to see how you live for the first time. And I remember my first day eating in the dorm cafeteria. I only wanted to eat cool foods. And so I avoided things I actually liked, like beets, which in 1997 weren't hip, you know, and paired with blue salad. I was like, I don't think people will like me if I eat beets. But then, you know, week two, I ate beets again. Right.
2: (laughs) You got back on the beat. I got
0: back to myself. The name of your band comes from a street in Minneapolis that used to have a lot of dive bars on it. I was wondering, first of all, what your favorite dive bar is, each of you, and what you think makes a perfect dive bar. What are like the check marks?
1: Mm -hmm. That's a great question. In Brooklyn, it's probably for me this bar, Sunny's, which is in Red Hook. I mean, it's a lovely bar, but I would call it a dive because it's very hard to get to. It's um, all the way in Red Hook. It's not close to any public transportation. It's right by the water. It kind of feels like you're in like a totally different part of the city when you're there. So I think that's part of what makes a dive bar a dive bar in some ways. So, sometimes the locations like, you know, hole in the wall in the middle of nowhere. Yeah. And they have great music there and people dance. And it's always a very like mixed crowd of people. It's not like one type of like, you know, Brooklyn hipster or whatever. Everybody goes to this place from far and wide. And the um, bartenders are like regular. You know, it's like you always see the same bartender. That's part of what makes a dive bar feel like a dive bar. For sure.
0: Yeah, they're cryogenically frozen every night so that they can work there for
1: 400 <laughs> right. years. Yeah. yeah. And there's like a tiny back patio where like, Even if you're not a smoker, you just end up smoking there every night. (laughs) (laughs) Anytime you go, I feel like that's also part of a dive bar. You're like, I'm going to do this thing I've never wanted to do before.
0: (laughs) And what is your classic order? You know, I feel like at a dive bar, you'd order Mm. something different than when you were at a, you know, like a fancier place.
2: Yeah, different rules apply, right? One of the bars that we started playing in was called Toad in Porter Square in Cambridge, Massachusetts. For some reason, in my head, it was like always a blue cheese burger with fries. It just, yeah, it brings me back.
0: What's your drink order?
2: Ooh, the drink order. Yeah, I mean, at the time, it was like, what's the local beer? Beer kind of bloats me now in my late thirties, <laughs> so because uh, that's a concern. Yay! I guess I have now. <laughs> I don't drink during shows anymore. But if I were to, it would be a tequila. I think straight, maybe a. Ice cube, maybe a lime. It's clean, burning, and it you know has gives you a little pep too. Um, that's the I keep help keep you focused.
0: What about you, Rachel? What's your go-to dive bar drink?
1: Well, I don't drink alcohol, so it's it's a club soda with bitters. Yeah, classic. Yeah, the classic. Yeah, non-drinker. <laughs>
0: All right, Rachel's up first. What is your last meal?
1: I love this question because I have so many food intolerances, so many sensitivities, (laughs) I have the stupidest gut. So this (laughs) question, me being very practical, I was thinking in the scope of things that I can eat, but I was like, oh, right, this can be anything. (laughs) It's my last meal. So I really had to think outside the box as a Virgo. And I think it would be, well, it would, this is what it would be. It would be like a excellent croissant. You know, it has to be from a bakery in France with cheese and jam oh mm. tell me more tell yeah me more tell like me a soft more. cheese
2: like a boursin.
1: yeah no like a brie <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> like, <now. Yeah>. <laughs>
2: <laughs> like right. a brie
1: but like not not a super stinky brie like a real like a nice mild brie mm-hmm. or even honestly cream cheese actually cream cheese maybe Oh, see, now I'm changing my mind. Now, I've, now I'm now i kind of wondering if my last meal would be Ritz crackers with cream cheese and pickles. Ooh, What? Yeah, okay. The croissant is a dream because it's like I never had a croissant in France until I found out I had a gluten allergy. So I just have this sense that I'm missing something major. But if I'm thinking about the thing from childhood that I ate the most of, it's just like whole sleeves of Ritz crackers with cream cheese and a pickle slice on top. Ooh. And, and we, it is I'm with you. Amazing.
2: Are we talking about bread and butter pickles or kosher dills or
1: not bread and butter. Yeah. Just like a regular mm. kosher dill pickle. But like a Ritz cracker is not a thing that I've ever found like a an equivalent of in the gluten-free world. And like, I miss those crackers so much. They're so good.
0: So is that something that you made up that combination or somebody made it for you when you were
1: a kid? It was like a common like potluck thing that my mom made for like gatherings. Oh. Yeah. She'd be like, oh yeah, we're, we're going over to so-and-so's house for the potluck. Pull out the Ritz crackers, cream cheese and pickles. <laughs> Wow! Wow! So this
0: was like a plated appetizer.
1: Oh yes, it was a plated okay. appetizer. Wow! That she would serve to a company. It sounds like a very seventies, <laughs> yeah, uh, hors d'oeuvre to me, right?
2: Yeah, it's it's very like like the advent of like these incredibly highly processed, amazing foods. Like it's the first time scientists were like. What kind of cracker makes you want to never stop eating crackers and yes. like figured out and and, like, and the cream cheese and the pickles and everything that the chemicals in it that just made you want to freak out?
0: Yeah. It does sound like something that would be in a church cookbook or a woman's magazine for like easy entertaining. Yes. Yes. Oh. <laughs> So, oh good. my god, I love that. I just have this picture of her walking in with the tray. Oh, yeah, I could get pretty snobby about food, and then I realized when I go to a party, the thing that I want the most are the little smokies in the crock pot, and I will never buy them. But if they're there, I'm gonna eat them. Like, all we really want is a Ritz cracker with cream cheese and a pickle on it. That's true, I know. I was yeah. trying
1: to think they're all like my favorite meals, and I was like, oh, that restaurant with the this and this, and I was like, no. Yeah.
3: <laughs> <laughs>
0: For her last meal, Rachel wants Ritz crackers smeared with cream cheese and topped with pickle slices. Ritz crackers were created by Nabisco in November 1934 to compete with hi-ho crackers made by Sunshine Biscuits. This was during the Great Depression, so calling them Ritz was very strategic. Nabisco wanted people to feel like they had access to a little bit of luxury, like staying at New York City's Ritz-Carlton Hotel in cracker form. They called Ritz a bite of the good life. Within just a few years, Ritz was the best-selling cracker in the country. And you know what? Ritz are still the best-selling savory snack food in America. Not just the best-selling cracker, the best-selling snack food, according to a YouGov poll. Now, I'm sure you can picture a Ritz cracker in your mind right now. It's a round cracker with a fluted edge, and each buttery cracker has seven pinholes in it. Now that I pointed this out, you might notice that most crackers have these little holes. Saltines have them, graham crackers have them, and they are there for function, not fashion. According to the Times of India, the holes are called dockers, and it's making me laugh thinking of these little holes with their pleated pants going off to work at Microsoft. Anyway, the dockers let the steam escape from the crackers while they're baking, so they stay flat and crackery instead of rising like bread or developing air bubbles. I found an article in Food & Wine magazine written by the great-great-niece of the man who designed the original packaging for Ritz. And she says her great-great-uncle, Sidney S. Stern, created the blue circle with Ritz written across it in yellow, mimicking the design from the inside of his hat. And Stern designed a lot of packaging for Nabisco. He's also the person responsible for adding that little string to boxes of Barnum's Animal Crackers, which is how I was able to use one as a purse in high school in the mid-90s. I never thought I'd be someone who'd say I have a favorite meme, but I have a favorite meme. And I don't think there is any other meme that even comes close to this one. As somebody who loves a pun, there's a meme of Vladimir Putin standing on a Ritz cracker. And the caption says Putin on the Ritz. Okay, so that was Rachel's last meal. And when we come back, Mike, the drummer, will share his stick around. Just a quick reminder to make sure you're subscribed to the show so that you can get new episodes as soon as they come out. And if you have a moment, leave us a little review. It really does help to get the show out to new people. All right, let's get back to the show. It's Mike's turn. What do you want for your last meal?
2: I had a time with this. I was like up in the middle of the night thinking about whether or not my answer was right. This is a tough choice, you know. But at the end of the day, I think I just eat for dessert, like when I'm going full comfort, definitely something sweet. So I think for my last meal, honestly, in all honesty, it would be 12 to 14 pounds of milk chocolate covered pretzels.
1: <laughs>
2: Just straight. <laughs> you know, if, if I'm going to. That's
0: if it's, amazing. If I'm gone
2: within the hour.
0: Yeah. You yeah. don't want to stop.
2: Right. Yeah. Because about an hour later, things are going to get dicey. I settled on this because that's my favorite sweet treat.
0: It felt like slow motion when you were saying 12 to 14 pounds. I'm like, what? (laughs) So what is the story behind that? I mean, when did you start to really love them? Is there a particular brand that you like?
2: My mom would always get them. And I've always had a sweet tooth. I mean, that's forever. But now that you have me thinking about it, when we were very young, my sister and I had a babysitter from up the street. And it's the classic story. I was like very very young and very much in love and one of the activities was to make homemade chocolate covered pretzels because we always had pretzels around like tiny bite-sized things and she would take you know hershey's syrup and cover like parchment paper tray of these laid out pretzels and then pop them in the freezer it was very tactile and visceral and like She'd be close to me and we'd be squeezing syrup on these pretzels, you know, and then it was like, okay, now in the freezer we have to wait. It was like this delayed gratification thing. It was all very, I think, tied up in like care and attraction and all these things. And I, if I had to trace it, if I was getting Freudian with it, I would say that like that was the beginning of my comfort level and love of chocolate covered pretzels. I don't know what ever happened to her. She was fantastic. Oh, you
0: know what happened to her. You're watching <laughs> her right now.
2: <laughs> you know
0: where she is. Yeah. <laughs> Babysitters do kind of make these impressions. I have these certain things I'll never forget about something that a babysitter did. For
2: sure, yeah. They're taking care of you. It's very, yeah. Yeah, it's very personal.
0: Also, the tactile. I can imagine that when they came out of the freezer that you kind of had to pop them off the parchment paper and that that would be very satisfying. Definitely.
2: Oh, yeah. Soup to nuts. What a wonderful experience that was.
0: (laughs) (laughs) That is a really good story. I appreciate this last meal so much. For his last meal, Mike wants 12 to 14 pounds of milk chocolate covered pretzels, ideally made side by side with the love of his life, his childhood babysitter. I'm willing to bet that almost every single person listening can instantly pull up a food related babysitter memory whether you were the babysitter or you were being babysat. I have this really strong memory of being maybe four or five years old and my neighbors were over and we had a babysitter. We somehow convinced her to lay my toddler sister on the dining room table and we took turns squirting ketchup all over her as a part of some game that we were playing. And now that I say it out loud, it sounds way creepier than it did in my head. And when I was a teenager, I babysat a lot. As a person who hopes to never have children, it astonishes me how much interest I took in babysitting. And there was this one family that I particularly loved babysitting for. They had three kids, they were all gingers, and I loved watching them because their parents bought all of the foods that my parents wouldn't specifically home pride butter topped wheat bread which was basically white bread with a tan full fat mayonnaise because this was deep in the fat free 90s and that's what my mom bought and the crowning jewel Oscar Mayer bologna I would make myself at least two bologna sandwiches every time I was at their house, and I still have this memory of how it felt to peel open the packet of bologna. I remember it had a yellow back on it, and I remember how soft the sandwich was and that squishy sandwich bread sticking in my molars. Genevieve Thiers is the founder of Sitter City, the country's first and most popular babysitting website. She started the company in 2000 right after graduating from Boston College. And last year, she sold it for millions.
4: So Sitter City was the very first foray into online child care. Sitter City became this mashup of Match.com, Monster.com, and a Nanny Agency. I just kind of smushed them all together. You know, I'm really proud of the story. We've served, you know, over 10 million users at this point, thousands of interviews and talk shows, and and it just blew up. And it was something that really did change the world. I just can't believe this story happened because I'm trained in opera. <laughs>
0: Genevieve is the oldest of seven kids, and her mom never hired a babysitter.
4: Babysitting was my life. It was how I made my way through school, etc. It was also how she discovered good food. The food in my household, it was atrocious. There were five dinners we would have. It was like burnt chicken with those frozen vegetables. (laughs) Soggy spaghetti, because they would overcook it. Uh, you know, just stuff like that. And pizza nights were a miracle. There were seven kids too. So like we went to Friendlies like once a year. I grew up in Philly. It was like amazing to go out and get a hot dog at Friendlies. <laughs> so when I see babysitting, it was like the biggest culinary adventure. You can imagine these people had awesome stuff in their fridges, pine nuts. And and they would have like chocolates. And like, I was that sitter that like the minute the parents left would case the joint for the gourmet food. Right? I would plan a meal and like, you know, if they had something really fancy, I would just take a little of it. But, you know, I'd be like, I gotta try that. Right. You know, it's a weird situation anyway, because some parents are like, oh man, eat anything, you know, whatever. And then other parents don't say a word. So you don't really know what you can do. Like, I remember sometimes eating a dinner on the toilet in the bathroom, like, because you're never sure they have have a nanny cam or not, right? Oh, my God. (laughs) So I would make like a PB&J and like eat it in the bathroom. right? But you know, there was this one French family and they were like, eat anything. And I did, you know, they had like Foie gras at one point. Wow. And I was like, I'm just gonna try this. I had no idea how to prepare it, <laughs> you know, like, nibbling. <laughs> so, like foie gras. I, you know, it was it was amazing how different every family's pantry was and the incredible like flavor that everything had in those pantries versus my house.
0: There is a beautiful voyeuristic quality to babysitting. You get to really see who somebody is based on their fridge and their pantry.
4: Oh, yeah. Sometimes you get like a a mom who obviously didn't eat anything. But other times you'd meet a family that was obviously very gourmet. Is that what introduced you to good food, babysitting? Because, you
0: know, you weren't having it at home. Oh, yeah. You know, I
4: remember once I'd been at a job where they actually had olive oil. We didn't have that in my house, right? We didn't even have Pam spray. Everything just went on the pan, right? You know, nothing underneath it. And so I remember that the mom had showed me, she, sometimes, you know, they'll say, oh, the kids like get prepped like this, you know, al dente or whatever. And she was showing me a, I don't know, spaghetti preparation. And not only did she make the pasta al dente, which to me was a miracle, but she put in olive oil on the noodles and they separated. You know, ours were clumpy and overcooked. So I went to the store <laughs> and I got olive oil and I brought it home and you have to understand my mom like the chutzpah of this act right? <laughs> that I had brought olive oil into the home like led to first of all constant ridicule right you're one of seven children <laughs> then mystified silence right when I actually created spaghetti with this and showed them the al dente um everyone tentatively took a bite declared it awful That's when I started just cooking for myself. But it was my only exposure. It was all so new and exciting, right, to be on the job and to try something new. But God help me if I tried to bring it back
0: home. What is the rule with eating when you're a babysitter? You know, if the parent says, oh, help yourself. How literal do you take that? You know, are there rules
4: around this? You know, I wouldn't give any rules on the sitter at all. I don't think a sitter is going to abuse. She's going to eat like dinner, you know. So having been a sitter, it's not hard to say. Help yourself, right? And if you have something you don't want her to eat, like a cake you made for a birthday on Thursday, just tell her not to eat it. But for parents, if you don't say anything, we don't know. And so I think the rule is for the parents. Genevieve wrote a book called Love at First Sit
0: a parent's guide to finding and keeping the perfect babysitter. And for the book, she researched the history of babysitting.
4: Before the world wars, sitting was just something a woman was expected to do, unpaid. Literally men would just pick up children that were in the way and hand it to the nearest female. You did not question it, this was just your function, right? So then the war happened, women went to work. And when the guys, the soldiers came back and bumped them out of the factories, they got used to getting paid for stuff. Babysitters really had a rough time charging for their services. In fact, in the 1950s, I'll bet you didn't know this, the ideal sitter was a male a high school football player. It was like, really? Yes. No, really. Your ideal sitter was Chad, this, this big football player from high school, because that was the epitome of like American success and what you wanted your kid to see. In fact, this is wild you know, look it up. It's true. The football coaches would have your sitter. So we we have this problem with women in America where we're furious that they dare to charge for what in the 1920s or earlier was, was something that we just had to do. There's a reason in the 80s, babysitters are getting stabbed, raped, killed on film. There's a reason. It's fury, you know? I mean, think of how many horror movies are about hurting a babysitter.
0: I would never have put that together. So you think that it's leftover resentment? from decades before of these women
4: being paid for work that they should do for free? Yeah, absolutely. Only when we saw Adventures in Babysitting. And then Babysitter's Club came along around the same time. That was the first time there was like a vote of support for women. Uh, Okay, we see you and your services are of value. So Babysitter's Club is more formative than you think for most women given the history of how America treats women.
0: I was a huge fan of the Babysitter's Club books growing up. In sixth grade, I got in trouble in class for reading a Babysitter's Club book inside of my science book. You know you are a card-carrying dork when you get busted for reading. And this year is the 35th anniversary
5: of the Babysitter's Club. It follows um, the adventures of... Seven core characters who live in Stony Brook, Connecticut, a fictional town in Connecticut, and they run a babysitting business together called The Babysitter's Club. I think they start off in seventh grade and then they spend the rest of the series perpetually in eighth grade. Um, It's all kind of about uh, their babysitting adventures and their friendships and their families and just everything that's going on in their lives. That's Marissa Crawford,
0: co-editor of the book We Are the Babysitter's Club, essays and artwork for grown-up readers. It comes out on July 6th. And if you read the original series, you probably remember that there were quite a few food-related themes.
5: I feel like the food stuff that sticks out the most is definitely descriptions of Claudia's junk food obsession. Um, So she hides junk food throughout her bedroom and the babysitter's club meets in Claudia's bedroom. So there's constantly all these descriptions of her like, quote, fishing out junk food from under pillows and she hides it in like hollow books, which is like such a cool, weird image. (laughs) Oh, I Um, wanted that
0: so bad when
5: I was a kid. I thought that was the coolest thing. (laughs) I know. So yeah, definitely like all kinds of candy, like M&M's, like root beer barrels. She's often eating like ring dings, malamars, Doritos, just like all kinds of like iconic 80s and 90s junk food.
0: (laughs) I had never heard of a Malamar before I read the books and that always stuck out to me because I really liked the word.
5: Yeah, true. I feel like Malamars didn't really exist for me outside of the Babysitter's Club either. <laughs> I actually, still, I've never had one. Have you? I'm not sure I ever have, though I definitely feel like I should have, considering how often I've read that word in this books.
0: Know, I know, <laughs> Marissa reads a section from a book where Claudia was having a junk food moment.
5: Later, when she left my room, I got the licorice whips out of my desk, and the Nancy Drew book out from under my mattress, where it was hidden, along with a bag of root beer barrels. As I chewed away on the licorice, my thoughts began to wander. Then there was
0: Stacy the stylish babysitter from New York City who was diabetic.
5: There's often these like very detailed descriptions of the whole club enjoying junk food or like having a pizza party or they're like at lunch, Stacy's eating like a sad apple instead. So I feel like it's like this very defining characteristic of her um, showing how she struggles with, you know, being diagnosed with diabetes. And then there was Dawn. The Blonde
0: California Transplant.
5: She's very health conscious and she's always eating things like granola, carrot sticks and tofu. When you look back at the books, I think she can like often be kind of judgmental about the other characters eating like junk food or or even like hot lunch at school. Kind of reminds me of how like nowadays diet culture is so often shrouded in like the language of health. I think they were just really
0: leaning into this California stereotype of she has blonde hair and she eats from a health food store and she eats tofu. It was just like as California as they (laughs) could make it
3: seem. Yeah, Yeah.
0: One of the essays in Marissa's book is called Getting Over Claudia and Calories written by Jennifer Epperson.
3: My earliest memories of the Babysitter Club come online at around age eight. In my school, I grew up in the 90s and we had the Pizza Hut book club thing. And so I quickly did the math and realized I could burn through a lot of Babysitters Club books and get my free pizza. Um, wait a minute. So was... Wait a
0: minute. Explain because I remember in school it was if the class read the most books, the class would get pizza. What is this Pizza Hut book situation?
3: You know, Houston was voted like the fattest city several <laughs> years in a row, so maybe Houston had its own version. But I and reading was remember. to blame. Yes. <laughs> But I I definitely remember like, you know, it was an individual effort, like you depending on how many books you read within a certain amount of time, um, you got a coupon for Pizza Hut. And I remember getting like my own little personal pan. Yes. Pizza. Yeah. Oh,
0: mm. uh, my mouth is bothering just hearing you talk. I will do almost anything for pizza. It was a very good incentive.
3: Yes, it was very effective. Absolutely. <laughs> um. So yeah, that's how I started reading Babysitter's Club books. And I specifically remember having a bone to pick with Claudia. I can't believe she gets to eat all these snacks and not gain weight. That was my take home with Claudia and her eating habits. And it actually ended up mirroring what I was experiencing in my real life as a child.
0: Remember, Claudia is the character who hid junk food all over her room. And in the books, they would always point out that she never gained an ounce or got a pimple. Growing up, Jennifer played sports and was really active.
3: But I am just a bigger boned person. But my friends were definitely on the slender side. Watching my friends being able to eat all the dunkaroos, eat all the fruit by the foot, all of the snacks, (laughs) gushers, whatever they wanted to eat and not gain a pound and be able to fit whichever clothes they wanted to. Claudia then started exhibiting those same behaviors, at least in my mind, as I was reading the book. So I think those two kind of separate experiences set a foundation for me just observing that some people get to and exist in very different ways than I do in this world.
0: Jennifer went on her first diet when she was eight years old. So how has your body image changed as you've become an adult? Uh, That's that's, that's a
3: loaded question, Rachel. (laughs) That's a great question. It's interesting because... At this point, I'm 36. I think that now where I am is I appreciate the powerfulness of my body. I've run so many, you know, half marathons, marathons, I've boxed. My body has given me more and then some. The girl who put herself on a diet at nine, gratefully, uh, that aspects of that child do not exist anymore.
0: And just like all of us, Jennifer could immediately pull up a strong food memory associated with a babysitter. She had a much older sister who she was desperate to spend time with.
3: When she would babysit, she always made us these lemon bars, lemon zest, sweet gooey goodness. Definitely the kind of thing where maybe my parents would not like us eating that at like four o'clock on a Saturday afternoon, but Once they were gone and the rules were hers to make, that is what she made us each and every time. And I like just thinking about it right now, like my mind can taste it. Not only was it that the lemon squares themselves were really good, But I think it also symbolized the freedom of parents being gone, but also just being able to connect with my older siblings that I, you know, looked up to and admired and no parental supervision. What fun could happen next? Yeah. All in that lemon bar. Mm -hmm. Marissa has her own memory. When I was
5: um, in high school, I babysat a lot for this family. And I remember like, so you know, Girl Scout cookies like Samoas? Yeah. They're so good. They're like coconut and chocolate. So the people I babysat for, they had like this giant Tupperware just filled with Samoa's, and like you know how when you babysit, they're like, oh, like help yourself to anything in the fridge or the cabinets, and I like. I just couldn't stop like I was like (laughs) eating all these Samoas like every time I babysat for them to the point that like I still like as a woman in my 30s am kind of played out on Samoas because I ate so many (laughs) oh it's kind of like when you make
0: a kid smoke a pack of cigarettes so they never want to smoke them again you did that to yourself with (laughs) Samoas
5: (laughs) true I mean I wouldn't say I never want to eat them again but it's a change my relationship with them I want to know your babysitting eating memories. Head
0: to my Instagram stories, hello Rachel Bell, that's B E L L E. I put up a question box so you can share your story with me, and then I'll share all of your stories with the rest of my followers. All right, when we come back, one last visit with Mike and Rachel from Lake Street Dive, where Rachel shares her special power when it comes to ordering at restaurants. Lake Street Dive has been a band for 17 years. So they've done their fair share of touring,
1: which means eating a lot of meals together as they drive around the country from show to show. We were on a long drive, like one of those day-long 12-hour drives that we've done so many of. And me being me, I plotted out where we should eat lunch, stop for lunch five hours before we had to stop (laughs) for lunch. And I was like, we're going to stop in Richmond. We're going to go to the Mellow Mushroom. We're going to get pizza. They have gluten-free pizza there. And we're going to eat pizza for lunch and we're going to be so happy because this drive is horrible. And we were in our pajamas and yeah, we stopped. We got the pizza and then we were, we were actually sitting like in the back of a parking lot, like on the ground, eating pizza in our pajamas. And yeah, this car of people drove by and they were like, <laughs> Lake Street Dive. And we were like, Oh God, like it's just like all of our shame. <laughs> was on display. We were like this is not when
2: we yeah, it was it was great. It was a wonderful day. Wow, I really <laughs> don't remember that at all.
0: Rachel remembers these things because she pays attention to the little details. Rachel, you have a special affinity for remembering what people ate at meals that you've had with them? Yes.
1: Yeah, I just have a weird a weird memory for food. I think In a lot of ways, like I'm really concerned with what everyone's eating and like I'm like interested and I also want to make sure they're eating enough and I want to make sure they get what they want. So I like to keep track of what everyone's eating so that the next time we're somewhere, I'll remember, I'll be like, oh, we ate at this restaurant and like you ordered this and this and trust me, like you're going to like it. Oh, that's
0: sweet.
2: Yeah, I feel like this also, it it ties into another superpower Rachel has, which is like, this would happen with McDuck a lot on the road. He had like a phobia about ordering food. It's just like a mental block. He couldn't make a choice. And so he'd be like, Rachel, I need you, and she, without missing a beat, she'd be like, "He'll take the number five, no mayo, yeah. with the side of blah blah blah." And he'd be, it would come, and he'd be like, "Rachel, this is exactly what I wanted. How did you know?" Wow, yeah,
1: well, I know what everybody wants to eat. <laughs>
2: it's incredible.
1: That is that
0: is really special though, because that's such care. Mm-hmm. What you did is is very loving that you remember. orders. Yeah. <laughs> thank order, you. So. Yeah, for sure. Sometimes yeah. it's controlling, but yes, <laughs> <laughs> you will have the number five. Yeah. Knowing all of that, what is Mike like? What do you know about him to know what he should order?
1: Yeah. Well, Mike's diet has changed a lot in the last 10 years. So it's it's been hard for me to to keep up. <laughs> I know that Mike likes a nice fish. He loves a vegetable and he loves like a healthy starch mm-hmm. of some type. And then on occasion, he's going to indulge. He's going to eat like a French fry or like a sandwich you know, with like a sauce.
2: <laughs> Definitely.
1: <laughs> but in general, he's a, very, he's a very, very healthy eater.
0: And those were the last meals of Rachel Price and Michael Calabrese from Lake Street Dive. Check out their new album. It's called Obviously. And check out their tour schedule. Live music is back. Go to LakeStreetDive.com to see if they're coming to your city. They're going to be performing at one of my favorite local venues, Chateau Saint-Michel Winery in Woodinville, Washington, in September. Thanks to Marissa Crawford. Her book, We Are the Babysitter's Club, Essays and Artwork from Grown-Up Readers, is coming out July 6th. But you can go online right now and pre-order it. And thanks to Jennifer Epperson, who wrote an essay for that book. This episode was produced by Laura Scott and Me, theme music by Prom Queen. Make sure and follow along on Instagram, Hello Rachel Bell. that's B-E-L-L-E. And if you like the show, tell your friends. I'm Rachel Bell, and this is Your Last Meal. How you doing? Well, actually, it's been a rough morning. An hour ago, I got a Kenny G song stuck in my head. I don't even listen to Kenny G, and it's still in there. Where did it come from?
2: Uh, that's his secret, Magical power.
0: I love when people talk about sex in the city and they'll say something like, oh, I'm a Carrie with the Miranda rising. So do you do the same thing with Babysitter's Club? Who, what is your Babysitter's Club star sign?
5: <laughs> I mean, I definitely related a lot to Claudia and I identified a lot with Stacey in different ways because I've gotten older. like Maybe there's some Christy, some Marianne in there as well. But <laughs> what about you? I don't like who I
0: am. With the baby, <laughs> I like who I am, but um, sure. I think that I'm a lot of a Christie because I can be pretty bossy and type A.
5: Yeah, Christie's awesome though.